Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we are talking geomagnetic storms, extreme electromagnetic events known as coronal mass ejections that would destroy every satellite around the planet, wipe out every power grid, and most, if not all, of our electronics. These events are terrifying and have happened within human history. The Carrington event that happened in 1859 destroyed the only electrical system at that point, the telegraph, across all of North America. An event such as that now would have catastrophic, even civilization-ending impacts. Scientists predict an event like the Carrington event happens every 100 to every 500 years. So we're already 50 years into that period. So we were well due another. Yet despite the profound impact and the likelihood, public awareness remains low, there is little political action, little has been done to harden our power grid or plan for such an event. To talk about geomagnetic storms, their impact, the likelihood, the fragility of our global power grids and some solutions, is Distinguished Professor of Electronics and Computer Engineering, Edel Shamaloglu. Edel is the Distinguished Professor in the Electrical and Computing Engineering Department at the University of New Mexico and specialises in extreme electromagnetic phenomena. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review. And while I don't expect you're going to enjoy this episode, I hope you find it interesting. Edel, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. So I'm excited to have this conversation. We are talking about geomagnetic storms, coronal mass ejections, and the impact that would have on the civilization, uh, the global civilization that we've developed, and especially its reliance on power. Before we dig into the uh, into what is quite a terrifying story, can you just tell us a little bit about your work with the IEC, and in particular your work on the SC-77C task force? Sure. So the IEC stands for International Electrotechnical Commission. It was founded in 1906 and is a standards organization. So they develop standards for uh, civilian products in order to protect them from various phenomena. In 1989, a group of experts came together and formed Subcommittee 77C. And Subcommittee 77C focuses on high-power transient electromagnetic phenomena. I am currently the chair of SC77C, and we have over a dozen international experts that serve on this committee. Initially, this committee focused on high-power transient electromagnetics due to a high-altitude nuclear electromagnetic pulse, the so-called HEMP, H-E-M-P. H stands for high-altitude EMP. That occurs uh, if a nuclear bomb were detonated several hundred kilometers in the atmosphere and would create a huge electromagnetic pulse that could, in principle, wipe out the entire grid in a very large region like North America. So in 1999, the committee uh, broadened its scope to include intentional electromagnetic interference. So intentional electromagnetic interference in the military is called directed energy microwaves. Uh, it is also called high power microwaves. 
It could be a small device that a tinkerer can build in their garage that could locally disrupt uh, things from working, or it could be a highly sophisticated military system such as the Boeing Champ, which is a flying directed energy weapon that's used for counter electronics. Mm. Then a, a couple of years ago, we further expanded the scope to include geomagnetic storms. So we refer to these three threats as the triple threat. Yeah. And I, I guess it's going to pique people's interest. That second threat you mentioned, that's tied to or suspected to be involved in what we saw at the embassy staff in Cuba, right? Right. Some people are of the opinion that it was pulse-directed energy that was used, and that was the conclusion of the uh, National Academy's report on this matter that was published in December of 2020. So pulse-directed microwaves, in addition to being used by the military, can also be used by rogue actors. As an example, I was in a conference in Magdeburg, Germany in the mid-2000s, and uh, there was a German company called Diehl, D-I-E-H-L, that had a demo for the conference attendees. They had built a compact electromagnetic generator, a pulsed electromagnetic generator that fit into a suitcase. They placed the suitcase next to a garbage can at the end of the sidewalk, and then they had a, a fleet of black Mercedes-Benz limousines drive by. They initiated that device, and all of the Mercedes stopped dead. And what happened was the high-power microwaves, the high-power electromagnetics that was generated, took out all the computers in the cars and put them to a dead stop. And of course, back in the 60s, our cars had no computers in them. But today, uh, we're so reliant on computers that all of our vehicles, modern vehicles, would be vulnerable to such threats, whether it's an intentional threat or a geomagnetic threat, they would all be vulnerable. And of course, car manufacturers know about this, yet they're hesitant to uh, harden the computers in the, because anything that cuts into their profit margins is something that they don't want to hear about. And that's mm. the problem. And we have a similar problem with geomagnetic threats and the power grid. Yeah, which we're coming on to. And, and I just want to clarify with just one point because it's relevant for the rest of the discussion. It's not like when you turn off the suitcase device, the cars start back up, right? Those, that, those electronics are fried. Uh, they're dead. They're not disrupted. They're dead. It's just that current surges caused uh, the chips to basically no longer function. So yeah, in order to get the vehicle running again, you need to swap out the computer and then it'll run again. Hmm. Okay, well, so thanks for that. And I think that really sets up well the, the, the level of expertise you have to talk on this subject. So we're here, I mean, all of these, or particularly the, the first EMP and the, the last, have profound potential impacts for our power grids and also telecommunications in general. In fact, most, most systems that require power. And this was first, I guess, highlighted to the world a long time ago in we had the Carrington event in 1859 just really at the birth of, of the telegraph and more widespread electronics and it was noticed at the time as a very significant event can you just just to help frame the conversation we're about to have can you just give us a couple of minutes on what people experienced in the Carrington event 
Sure. So in August of 1859, astronomers around the world were watching with fascination as the number of sunspots that they observed through their telescopes grew. Among them was uh, an astronomer by the name of Richard Carrington, who was actually an amateur sky watcher in England. And it turns out that, as most people know, there is an average 11-year cycle of sunspot activity. Uh, sunspots, the number of sunspots increase and then the number decrease over time with a fairly regular period of about 11 years. So the event that took place in 1859 actually took place a few months before the peak of the solar activity, which was supposed to happen in early 1860. And of course, back then in 1859, the world was primarily a mechanical world. Uh, the steam engine was ruling, and in the United States, uh, we were building the Transcontinental Railroad. And of course, alongside the Transcontinental Railroad, we were pitching telegraph lines. And telegraphy was the very first time electricity was used for communication. In fact, it was the first widespread use of electricity. Keep in mind that the uh, James Clerk Maxwell uh, hadn't published his treatise yet on electromagnetic theory. So James Clerk Maxwell published his book in the mid-1860s, and it wasn't until the 1890s that the existence of electromagnetic waves was demonstrated by Heinrich Hertz at the University of Karlsruhe. So one of the evidences of the Carrington event was that telegraph lines were exploding all over the country. And that's because tremendous currents were induced on those lines, and those uh, wires were not designed to carry such large amounts of current. I mean, an analogy would be, imagine a lightning bolt were to strike a telegraph line. It would cause the line to explode because it would be way too much current for the line to handle. And so that was the event, and it, therefore it was named after Carrington subsequently. Mm. And listeners should note that we're also coming towards the peak of solar activity uh, right now. So I'll park that and come back to that, but just to, just to whet people's appetite for this kind of stuff. So, okay, back in 1859, when, you know, the, the first systems were just getting going that would be affected by this are profoundly affected by it, and people take note, and it's, it's quite an event. Before we dig into frequency and intensity and impact, can you just help us understand exactly what we mean by geomagnetic storms, coronal mass ejection, and, and those sunspots that uh, Richard Carrington... Uh, I am a plasma physicist by training. My PhD is in plasma physics. And the sun is a large sphere of plasma. On Earth, uh, we generate plasmas, but the only way we can contain them is by uh, using magnetic fields or inertia. But since the sun is so massive, its gravity is able to keep all the plasma together. And the plasma that you see is really ionized gas. And when I mean by ionized gas is the gas particles are no longer neutral. The outer electrons have been removed. So you have free electrons that can conduct current and you have ions. Uh, so that's what a plasma is. Now, the sun is a very dynamic plasma. It doesn't just sit there. It's constantly churning and bubbling, 
And just like the Earth has its own magnetic field, so does the sun. So the sun has its own magnetic field. And uh, scientists always believe that magnetic fields must always close upon themselves. You can't have a filamentary magnetic field. Well, that was disproven a few decades ago. And we now know that on the sun, because of the turbulence that's going on, magnetic field lines can actually break apart. And then imagine this magnetic field, which breaks apart and then sort of flings itself like a whip. And if the Earth happened to be in the direction that the whip is pointing at when it broke apart, then all the plasma particles, the electrons and ions that are trapped on the magnetic field will flow along that magnetic field and then would fly in free space and would be directed towards Earth. And that event is called a coronal mass ejection. And we believe that the 1859 Carrington event was a result of a coronal mass ejection. So all of those particles travel very, very fast towards Earth, which is like 93 million miles away. And when it encounters the Earth's magnetic field, all those particles are trapped and very quickly uh, move along the magnetic field lines and encircle the entire Earth. So even if you were at the opposite side of the Earth, if you were in the dark side, compared to where the particles were incident, they will still be, for sure, all the satellites will be affected all over the Earth. The worst damage would be on the side facing the mass ejection, and the impact on the electric power grid would be comparable to what would occur with a high-altitude electromagnetic pulse. There is a potential to completely wipe out the North American grid. Now, if you think about it, back in 1859, really the only electrical thing that was vulnerable back then was essentially the telegraph lines. We didn't have radios, we didn't have satellites, we didn't have hardly anything. So the damage was mild. If the same event were to happen today, it could be a catastrophe. There are currently over 4,500 satellites orbiting the Earth. The majority, by the way, are owned by Elon Musk and SpaceX. For certain, all of those satellites will be vulnerable if a Carrington event were to occur today. And, of course, we now have a lot of electronics. We have not only the power grid, but with the Internet of Things, A lot of technology is currently embedded everywhere, and potentially everything could be lost, and we'd be essentially back in the Stone Age. Mm. Okay, so two things. Firstly, can you just talk to us a little bit about the magnetosphere? That's what protects us on a daily basis from the, the general normal activity of the sun's radiation, electromagnetic radiation, and... Just a quick question, a sub question on that is, could an event like this be so powerful that it destroys the magnetosphere? Uh, it, okay, so the magnetosphere is the natural uh, dipole magnetic field that surrounds the Earth. The magnetic field is generated by the dynamo effect, which is due to molten metals 
in the core of the Earth rotating, and that causes a magnetic field that goes from the South Pole to the North Pole. And as you mentioned, that does protect the Earth from plasma particles that might either emanate from the sun or are naturally occurring in the uh, ionosphere. So as an example, in the northern climates at, at wintertime, uh, you see very brilliant aurora activity. And that aurora activity is nothing more than plasma being trapped by the magnetic field lines. And the reason why they're more intense in the north pole as opposed to the equator is, as you can imagine, all the magnetic field lines that you can visualize that are around the equator, they all converge to a point, essentially, in the North Pole. So therefore, the concentration of magnetic field is greatest. And of course, the value of magnetic field is nothing more than the density of magnetic field lines. And therefore, the aurora activity is most intense uh, in those northern and southern regions of the Earth. And uh, no, uh, a coronal mass ejection would not disturb Earth's magnetic field. It would just make the magnetosphere more intense in terms of the plasma that would be trapped there compared to normal times. Right. I can, although civilization won't continue, at least uh, the uh, succeeding beings will have a magnetosphere. Okay, so... I would, I would like to point out that if your audience is really interested in observing more about what would happen after such an event, the National Geographic produced a very nice uh, documentary back in 2010 called Electronic Armageddon. And it's based on a book that Berkeley physics professor uh, Richard Mueller had wrote, uh, which was titled something along the lines of, I, I think, Physics for Presidents or something like that. And in that book, Professor uh, Mueller talks about uh, nuclear EMP and its impact on civilization. And that National Geographic DVD is a very good visualization and presentation of that effect. So if your audience is really interested in seeing what would happen, I highly recommend that. Yeah. And we're just about to get there. Just before we do, because I mean, and that's ultimately, I should say, what, what really fascinated me about this story is, it seems this is a relatively low awareness of these types of events that have happened within 150 years or so, and the profound impact it would have. And yet there's, there are things that could be done. And we'll come back to that. Can you just talk to us a little bit about frequency and intensity and perhaps use that Carrington event as a marker? The Carrington effect was a severe storm. And scientists uh, don't know for sure, but they believe that that's an event that would happen once every 100 to 500 years. That's the current thinking on that. So we're more than 100 years since the Carrington event and can happen uh, really at any time. I would remind your audience that back in 1989, there was a geomagnetic storm that took down the North America grid from Quebec down to New York, and that was due to a geomagnetic storm. So in our lifetimes, we have seen such events. Yeah. And just so I understand, do we think the Carrington event, if it would happen now in terms of intensity, would you consider that one of the a major coronal mass ejection that would have a, this global impact? Or is that still sort of really would probably be more regionalized impact? Uh, no, that could, uh, that could be a major global event, uh, especially it may not take the grid down over the entire 
planet, it would take the grid down in the region that is in the direct line of sight. But uh, as I told you, we're so reliant on satellites for communications, for telemetry, and certainly all the satellites would be destroyed. So, okay, so events less intense than the counting event, and therefore presumably more frequent, could also take down all of our satellites as well. Uh, they may. Uh, again, it, it depends on the severity. We've had uh, satellites now over uh, low Earth orbit now since the 1960s. So we have about 50 years of experience, and there have been incidents where one or two satellites were affected by solar storm activity, but uh, those events were relatively minor compared to uh, something akin to the uh, Carrington event. Yeah. Okay, so all the satellites are done uh, when when this uh, ejection hits the uh, well, the, the, you know, our environs, and we can just cascade what a, you know that what that would affect from GPS through to global communications through everything. It w that would have a profound impact on our society. The next level is nationwide grids. So tell us what happens to those if we would have, and when I say if, I mean when we have a Carrington event. If an event like the Carrington event were to strike uh, North America, for certain it would take down the North American grid. I mean, the North American grid comprises three zones. You have the eastern part of the grid, you have the western part of the grid, and then you have Texas, which basically does its own thing. And even though there's a federal agency, FERC, uh, that's responsible for overseeing the grid, as all of you know, there are individual companies that would own different parts of the grid, even though they're all connected to one another. So if there were an event like the Carrington event that were to occur, and if the grid is fully connected, uh, one would observe a cascading failure across the grid. And by the way, uh, I would like to point out the, the mode in which it would fail is the following. Every substation, and there are about 55,000 power substations in the North American grid, but every substation has a transformer. And these transformers are very expensive. They're multi-million dollars. They don't exist as commercial off-the-shelf products. They're made in Switzerland, and they're made to order. And if transformers were to be lost, you're talking about years, if not decades, that would be necessary to replace them. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. So, and, and that is anal analogous to every grid in most states around the world, right? For the most part. Yep, every, every grid everywhere would have such transformers. Yeah. And, and the point there that strikes me is if Switzerland, which is the primary manufacturer of these things, also gets presumably it would, disrupted by this uh, um, geomagnetic storm, it's not even going to have the power to create these new transformers. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And and one of the terrifying things, especially in that documentary you mentioned, is of course, you know, how many days is it before civilization just <laughs> you know ends as we know it? And I'm terrifying myself even thinking about it. Okay. It 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 is terrifying. It really is terrifying. I mean, uh okay. The US government did take the nuclear EMP problem seriously. They formed the so-called EMP Commission. The EMP Commission was formed, I believe, in 2008, but it came up with recommendations. But a couple of years ago, it was disbanded. And I think the problem is, is that if you were to try to harden against uh, nuclear EMP, the resources required to do that would be huge. And politicians uh, don't have the stomach to make investment in that. A similar type of investment would also harden the grid against a geomagnetic storm. Yeah, and, and we're going to come on to the some of the solutions and the, the challenges in that in a moment, because that's part of the reason for doing the podcast as well, is there are, you know, this isn't solely doom and gloom. There are things that can be done. But just staying on the effects and this idea that okay we don't we don't really know but using the Carrington event as a benchmark satellites are gone power grids are if not totally down then certainly within the region of the direct hit are down then also I mean our cell phones our laptops anything that's got a, a live current in it at the point of attack attack of the of the hit would also be infected i mean do they even need to be turned on there's these stories of uh, when the carrington event happened people being able to broadcast use the telegraph systems without any power packs in them yes so uh, certainly if you can power down devices and if you could for example take the grid down intentionally and disconnect from adjacent grids that would be a way of ensuring a certain level of protection. You can also imagine installing high voltage capacitors at these substations that would help protect the transformers. So there are some things that can be done. And I think this would be a good time to point out that we do have some satellites uh, in space that are designed to give us some warning in the case of uh, a large solar storm. Unfortunately, the ones that are currently up there are located at one of the Lagrange points. A Lagrange point is where the gravitational field of the Earth and the gravitational field of the Sun basically cancel each other out, so you're basically in stationary position. Unfortunately, the ones that are currently up there are on a direct line of sight between the Sun and the Earth. And so those satellites would only give us a 15-minute warning of a catastrophic event. That, that's maybe enough time to power some things down, to power the grid down. It's certainly not enough time to do anything about the satellites. And I don't even know if you had time whether there was anything you could do to protect the satellites. I don't know. Perhaps you could power down some of the more uh, sensitive modules within the satellite and just keep telemetry open. But the good news is that the European Space Agency, ESA, is planning on launching a satellite in a project called uh, VIGIL, V-I-G-I-L, in the mid-2020s. And that would also be at a Lagrange point, but it would be at a Lagrange point that is not direct path between Earth 
and the sun, but it would be off to the side. And that one would be located upstream. So uh, as you all know, the Earth rotates and orbits around the sun, but this would be in a direction where it would catch an event that as we're rotating would basically hit us in about a day. So that one will give us about a day warning of an impending event. So a day is a lot more time than 15 minutes and would give us additional time to act. Again, I think being able to protect the grid, being able to protect electronics on Earth, uh, yes, that's a possibility. But not sure if there's anything that can be done about the satellites. Yeah. So one of the things, though, of course, is that that day is is, is very useful. But I don't think there is the awareness in the general population. I mean, I urge our listeners to go and Google solar flare right now, and you'll see a number of news articles saying potential big one forming. There's one, as I, as I Googled earlier this morning, there's one that Forbes are talking about. I mean, there, there, isn't seem, there doesn't seem to be the awareness in the population that, okay, a global warning goes out, you know, all of our cell phones get these alerts, and everyone's told just to power everything off for the next 20, you know, 24 hours. I mean, there doesn't even seem to be, the, you know, it's amazing if you step back and you think, look at all of the things that could actually, the, you know, are, pose the biggest threats to our civilization, a coronal mass ejection of the scale or worse as the Carrington event is got to be really, I mean, it's got to be a more likely than a, a high altitude EMP. And ultimately it's more likely than most of the things that could cause such an acute devastation of our societies. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we should perhaps have, you know, it's, uh, uh, and I will come on to this at the end. I just find it fascinating that this isn't talked about a little bit more because whilst I might be sounding slightly alarmist, I don't think I am necessarily in terms of the known science, the known frequency and the impacts that it would have that again, it's one of these externalities that, and, and that's, let's go talk on to talk about that. We there are things we can do. You mentioned putting capacitators and so forth into these transformers. All of this requires a cost, albeit not actually that significant, but it's just not being done. Can you just talk a little bit about why you think that is? You know, is the in, here in the U.S. is the FERC moving towards insisting on having those in? And obviously, this is a story that's analogous to where I am in Texas, where we we haven't weatherized our uh, our, our our grid. Right. Uh, well, it all boils down to uh, economics, and the utilities are not of a mindset that they need to invest to protect against catastrophe, whether it is a high-altitude uh, nuclear EMP burst or whether it is a geomagnetic storm. I think the utilities are like ostriches burying their heads in the ground. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to talk about it. So about nine years ago, there was an incident that took place south of San Jose where there was a, a well-armed, well-trained band of assailants, the police estimate perhaps four to five, who attacked a, a substation with rifles, and they continuously fired for about uh, 20 minutes, and, and then they escaped before the police came on the scene. Uh, they were never identified. Uh, we don't know if those five assailants were domestic actors or other state actors. Uh, it is unknown. But they succeeded in damaging the cooling 
functions for 17 of the substations, and the substations did heat up, but fortunately, uh, since the incident was identified, they just powered down the substations, and they were able to repair it and get that substation back up and running uh, in a fairly short period of time. The transformer itself was not damaged. Uh, if no one had known about it, yes, they would have heated and they would have been damaged. So after that incident, FERC mandated having a security perimeter installed around every substation. But even today, some of the substations don't have very hardened perimeters. They have only chain link fences, and they're still vulnerable. So I think FERC recognizes the importance of having secure substations and does understand that it's better to harden the substations as best as you can from electromagnetic threats, but its ability to force utilities to invest in it is uh, quite limited. Yeah. Do I mean, and how does this compare to other countries? Like, do you see hardening throughout Europe, or is it a similar circumstance? Well, one example is South Korea, and of course, South Korea is Has other... constantly <laughs> under threat yeah. from North Korea. So, in South Korea, they have been hardening their grid, primarily driven by the nuclear EMP concern, but this will protect the grid against the geomagnetic storm as well. I think in Europe. There's also better awareness of this and some investment, but that's about it. In the U.S., there's hardly any investment at all. And there's no way of, in preparation, I guess, standardizing these transformers, these substations, so that there can be a stockpile in the event of whatever happens, right? Were those actors, whoever they were, which is just a fascinating and quite dark story, were have been able to take out those those substations... That could have presented months, years even, of of impact on those regional grids, right? I mean, that particular substation powers Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley, if those transformers were destroyed, had been destroyed, uh, Silicon Valley would be without power for years. Which is, I mean, that's just such a profound thing to to hear, right? I mean, and and again. Is there any effort to try and standardize it so we can get replacements more quickly? That's not a matter of uh, standardization. That's a matter of economics and investment. These, As I mentioned, these transformers take months to a year to build. They're very expensive. They're huge. And there just is no economic incentive for the manufacturer to invest millions of dollars to build these and store these when the amount that they're going to sell is unknown. It's just not economically feasible, which tells you that there has to be, instead of reliance on the private sector, perhaps this needs to be a government-led program that would stockpile these transformers. Yeah. And it also seems to me that this is one of those things is would also be a global event. So how globalized is the response at the moment, and particularly the work that you do on your, your subcommittee? I mean, is there a path forward so that we can improve those twin levels of planning and hardening? Let me explain what our committee does. Uh, our committee prepares what's called a standard. And these standards are not enforceable. These are voluntary standards. But industry does uh, pick up on these standards and uh, tries to accommodate them. So we have standards 
on how to protect a substation from a high-altitude nuclear EMP. And those documents give you the recipe for what you need to do to protect. And we are currently developing standards on how to protect substations against the effects of a geomagnetic storm. So that is a standard that is available for industry to purchase and then implement as part of their best engineering practices. Yeah. But again, I think like it comes down to, as you said, that this is tackling a, an externality and one hell of a fat tail that, uh, that it perhaps is not actually so unlikely as, as one would hope. In fact, it's not unlikely. It's just a case of whether you're going to be around or not when these things next hit. You know, that actually it takes a whole of, it takes a whole of government approach. Or, you know, and, and... I, I, I think it does. And in principle, it takes a whole world approach. But unfortunately, as a civilization, we seem to be playing worse and worse with one another as the years go by compared to how we used to in the past. So it's unrealistic to think that there might be a whole world response, but perhaps there could be a U.S.-European response, at least that would be implemented to at least provide a buffer for for us uh, in the U.S. and Europe. Mm. So final couple of things. Firstly, we're still, it's still ultimately a little bit unknown the frequency around these things, right? What, what, how are we basing the Carrington event being one every, let's just call it every 500 years? And can you also just talk a little bit about the, the sort of the, the natural ebb and flow of solar activity? Because I mentioned earlier on that we're starting to reach peak activity in what I believe is an 11 year cycle. Just, can you just talk to us a little bit about that? And also mention as well, how direction matters. It's all about whether one of these big events happen, but also has to be directed at us. Regarding the Carrington event being an every 100 to 500 year event, I am not an expert on that, so I, I can't explain how they concluded that that's the case. I would think it's a based on a, a statistical model that's tied to the typical 11-year cycle and the variability of the magnitude of those events in the 11-year cycle. The 11-year cycle itself is a typical pattern, but we have observed major coronal mass ejections during a minimum of the solar storm activity. So it's really, it doesn't mean that you can't have a major event at a low point in solar activity. You can. It's just that the more numerous events occur every 11 years and then wane in between. Again, I guess final thoughts before we will go hug our loved ones and uh, <laughs> prepare to you know, raise awareness of if ever the, a solar flare warning goes out, what to do and turn off all our electrics as best we can. Just coming back to that idea of the scale and the magnitude and the likelihood of this kind of event, it seems to me that it is way, it's much higher in all of those three categories than, say, you know, a rogue state using an EMP or a, vol a super volcano, Yellowstone National Park goes up or whatever it might be. This seems just such a, a profound, you know, this, it almost seems more likely than, I imagine it is, than a meteor hitting the planet and wiping us out. I mean, this is, it seems that this would be, this is the most existential threat that we face. 
and yet that just doesn't tally with awareness particularly i think you know people are far more aware of close near-earth asteroids than they are of solar flares and that their impact yes and of course people have seen movies where you've had such events occur as uh, meteors crashing and uh, near misses and asteroids and uh, the geomagnetic storm is not something that is in, in common movies or journalism it's really not discussed it's ill understood and uh, i think it's the job of uh, the government and politicians to be responsible and to plan for such an event because we know it already has occurred and we do know if a similar event were to occur today it would be devastating so yeah it is a real problem well many people in our audience are in the generation business so um hopefully they uh, they can go and uh, check out the, the the current plans for hardening and for responding to what currently is a 15-minute warning that we'd all have. Yeah, I, well, it's been quite a terrifying half hour, but I really do appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure, and I recommend your audience to Google the European Space Agency, ESA, and the word uh, VIGIL, V-I-G-I-L. You can read about the planned mission. Uh, you can see a visualization of where the Lagrange points are, and they have a very nice animation on that website that shows how the plasma particles from a coronal mass ejection very rapidly distribute all around the Earth following the Earth's magnetic field lines. So I do recommend you view that animation. Fantastic. And with regards to your work with, on the IEC, can we, put, we can share your contact details in the show notes or how can people get hold of you? Uh, sure, absolutely. Okay. Well, Edel, it's been a, a real pleasure and, and thank you for your time. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.